Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining today's conference call. I'm Jim Doyle with Business Forward, and I'll be moderating our conversation today. Currently, all lines are in listen-only mode. Uh, we're pleased to welcome Senator Michael Bennett of Colorado. He will brief us on his work in the Senate and offer insight on what business leaders could be doing to help him fix Washington. Prior to joining the Senate in 2009, Senator Bennett practiced law, served at the Justice Department, helped manage the Anschutz private investment firm, served as chief of staff to mayor of the mayor of Denver, and served as superintendent of, uh, to Denver's public school system. He currently serves on the Agriculture Committee, Finance Committee, and the Health Education, Labor, and Pension Committee. This is an interactive phone briefing, so after the Senator's remarks, we'll open to discussion uh, for your questions and recommendations. Uh, for those of you who are new to our programming, Business Forward organizes local roundtables, Washington fly-ins, conference calls, webinars, and media trainings for more than 100,000 business leaders across the United States. At these briefings, entrepreneurs, investors, small business owners, and executives get the chance to brief policymakers on issues affecting their business. More than 600 mayors, governors, members of Congress, and senior administration officials have participated in our programming, and this is all thanks to the support of more than 60 of America's largest and most respected companies. Before we get started, I'd like to cover a few housekeeping items. First, this call is on the record. Uh, this also means that we will release a recording later today. And second, it's an interactive phone briefing and there'll be time for you to ask questions. You can do this in one of two ways. You can press one at any time on your dial pad and you'll put, be put in queue to ask your question live, or you can email it to us at info at businessfwd.org. That's info at businessfwd.org. When we call on you to ask a live question, please introduce yourself with your business and where you're calling from. Please include the same information if you email us a question. Uh, again, just press 1 to ask your question live or email it to us at info at businessfwd.org. Um, let's get started. Uh, Senator Bennett, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jim. I appreciate it. I want to thank Robert Roche for bringing us all together. Um, and I, w the last time we had a conversation, somebody s suggested that it might be useful to talk a little bit about school reform and schools. Would, would, does that make sense, Jim, or do, am I off? Yeah, we, what we'd love to do is talk through what's pressing in the Senate right now and, and what you know, businesses could be doing to help you, and then we absolutely want to make some, uh, some time for educational reform because uh, we're about to start a big initiative at Business Board on it. Okay, so why don't I – the answer on what's going on in the Senate is not much. Uh, we've got the, uh, NAS, the defense authorization or the, uh, the defense bill is on the floor, and we're all trying to get our heads uh, screwed on straight about – what's going on um, at the border, which is an incredible challenge right now for the country, and be happy to talk about that if people are interested. The, 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 on, just on the education front, after I worked for Phil Anschutz do, doing distressed uh, turnarounds for him, I had the chance to go be the superintendent of the Denver Public Schools and help begin a reform effort that continues today. Um, and. Uh, Today we can say in Denver that while we've got a long, long way to go and we've got um, huge achievement gaps still, um, we're graduating 65% more kids than we were 10 years ago. The Latino graduation rate's improved by 120%, and it's gone from being basically flat on its back to being the fastest-growing urban school district in the country. That is against a, a, a set of challenges as a nation where if you're born poor in the United States, your chances of graduating with a college degree are roughly 9 in 100. I can think of nothing more at war with who we are as a country than that stubborn fact. And uh, if we would spend some time focused on that question, um, uh, I think it would be useful 
for the country, we spent none of it during the last presidential election. And I think the longer I've been at this in the Senate and the more I think about my perspective from Denver, the, the more I have come to believe in some pretty simple uh, articles of faith. One is that we have got to figure out a way to provide early childhood education to people in this country, especially kids living in poverty. That's obviously not something the federal government will do by itself, but as a nation, we've got to figure out how to do that. We need to have K-12 schools that each of us would be proud to send our kids, and in too many cities there aren't any, uh, or they're too far away for kids uh, to benefit from them. That's a huge piece of business that we have left as a country. And something that's happened really in the last decade or so is that we've made college so unaffordable that uh, I've got kid, people showing up at my town halls in tears, literally, because they can't, you know, they're 26 or 27 or 28, and they're so consumed by paying back their student loans that they can't make the customary choices that many of us um, uh, take for granted in our lives. I mean, one in the, the most recent town hall, I had a woman get up and say she'll never be able to own a house because she's confronted by the debt that she's got to pay back. And she was sitting in a seat next to her mom, who's a teacher, who still has to pay back her student loans. There are a lot of suggestions in Washington about how to reduce the burden, uh, uh, bring down the interest rate. I'm for all that. But the real problem is that college costs too much. That is a complex set of issues that are going to have to be solved at every local, at every level of government, not just the federal government. And I guess just for good measure, the final thing I would throw in is I think we have an enormous opportunity in this country to build out a model of apprenticeships that looks more like the German or the Swiss model than what we have, which is kind of a half-hearted effort uh, that's not creating the delta that it could create in terms of people's personal wealth if they can get the skills that, that businesses in this country actually need. I think we could engage in a very interesting project of converting the work that we're now doing at community colleges that's not producing people that are ready to do that work and get paid that sort of wage the opportunity to do so. So there are just a few thoughts on the education front, but I'm happy to take questions or criticisms on any topic. Great. Um, our, well, just to continue on with the education, um, one of the things that uh, uh, appears to have been so successful in Denver is the cooperation between the the school, the, the, the Department of Education, the, the school system, and education reforms, charter schools. You, you, you had uh, hybrid schools. Um, uh, so much of the education reform uh, effort around the country seems to be just a little more polarized. Um, uh, did this help in Denver, and how did you do it? Well, our timing was good for one thing, but um, you know, I think things have changed a lot uh, since Betsy DeVos has be become the education secretary because she's she's the best thing that's happened to people that want to keep our system exactly the same that could have been dreamt up because she doesn't believe in any accountability at all. And so she she believes in a model of school choice that has nothing to do with the model of school choice that Denver is pursuing and would be a disaster if, if Denver pursued it. But I see it all the time. I see people at the local level being tarred with the uh, brush of being a 
Betsy DeVos acolyte or something just because they want to insist that schools get better. My position always was that I didn't care what the school, how the school was organized. What I wanted to make sure we had was high quality schools. And in our in our case, what we've tried and we had a very collaborative relationship with the charter sector sector, as you said. We also created the opportunity for uh, school district schools to um, to convert themselves. Uh, we had a law passed at the state legislature that allowed it, with a vote of a vote of 60%, I think, of the faculty that you could waive out of the regulatory regime that you felt was holding you back, whether it was a district-led set of regulations or state regulations. And uh, that's been fairly successful. So we have a lot. If you look at our school district today, which I mentioned, you know, I had when when we took over, I, I was we had 40% too much built capacity for the kids that we had because so many families had left the district. And I had to unfortunately close a bunch of schools. All those schools have reopened and then some. There are now something like 200 schools in Denver. I think when I left, there were about 130. And um, a lot of those are charters, but a lot of them are also innovation schools that are not, don't, don't, aren't organized in the same way a charter is, but are also not delivering education in the same traditional model. And I think families have found that they there is a compelling array of choices. My my view more than the you know whether it's charter or not charter I think what's important is that when a kid and a family go to school that they feel they're making an affirmative choice to go to that school whether it's a neighborhood school or whether it's a charter school or whether it's a magnet school, it's important for people to believe, not and truly believe, that they are making an affirmative choice to to put my child in that school. Because I think when you when you have that feeling, you've got a sense that you want to protect it, and you've got to you fight for it. And in general, that's a good thing for schools. Thank you. Um, our first question is from Paul Shower of Littleton, Colorado. Uh, he writes, uh, it appears there are three elements defining healthcare solutions, accessibility, cost containment, quality of service. What are your suggestions for developing a sound public policy? I, and, and Senator, we've, we've got three other questions about okay, uh, I'll be uh, very your, quick. Uh, Medicare Extra. Oh, okay. Well, that's a, so first of all. Lots, we have lots of questions first, about that. First of all, I'm not <laughs> saying this just because he's my constituent, but that question <laughs> frames the issue perfectly. And so what I would say, first of all, for all those things, affordability, coverage, all it, it we have a system of health care in this country that is, um, uh, that, um, that is where nobody can figure out what anything costs. There is no transparency. And I think the, mo the, the single most, if you ask me what is the single most important thing we could do, it would be to create transparency because that would actually give uh, are Americans a fighting chance to keep their prices lower on drugs and on health care and other kinds of things. Opacity should not be a, a business model, and health care is completely opaque uh, to the American people. On Medicare X, this is a bill that Tim Kaine and I have together that crea would create a real legitimate public option. That we, we, we should have had a public option as part of the Affordable Care Act. We never did. This is a this would be a plan administered by Medicare. It's not Medicare. It's a plan administered by Medicare that would give people the benefit of two things at least. One, a uh, a uh, lower administrative cost plan than private plans. 
uh, and the, when they scored a public option during the health care bill, it actually saved the government money. Uh, the second uh, 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 part of it is that uh, it would allow us to pool people in rural parts of America that now have no way to 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 buy in, or don't have insurance offered to them or offered to them only at a very high price. And, and that's why Tim and I start there, actually. We say this will first be available in rural parts of our country where there's one or less insurer, and then over a three-year period, it would be available to everybody, and over, I think it's a four-year period, it becomes available to small businesses. I really believe in a state like Colorado, people want an option to, to private insurance. This is a way of giving them that option without without disturbing the expectations of the 180 million Americans that buy private insurance and 80% of whom like their private insurance. There are proposals that have been introduced to create a single-payer system where you know, that insurance would all go away, plus the 20 million Americans that are on Medicare Advantage who love their Medicare Advantage would lose their Medicare Advantage. Quite apart from that not being a plausible political idea, I think, I think that it isn't what at least people in my state would like to see. I think what they'd like to see is more options, and a public option would give them that. Um, Senator, the other uh, emails sort of are, are asking for a sort of compare and contrast with uh, the single payer proposals that some of your colleagues are offering. So that's would the you main. Mind just sort of that, walking through. Sure, that's sort of the main difference. Is that if yeah. look, I am not unaware, as you are, I'm sure, not unaware that there are a lot of industrialized countries in the world that have single payer systems that deliver pretty good quality health care at a lower price. But I um, can remember that uh, what happened when the Affordable Care Act was passed and a few thousand, you know, some tens of thousands of people lost, lost their health insurance and that provoked a political crisis in America. What I believe we should be, and, and by the way, None of the, not only do those plans not score, either they don't have scores or they would cost the taxes you would have to raise to pay for them, I think is more than the American people would tolerate. Our proposal instead is to have a public option that I think a lot of people would be interested in. As I said earlier, it saves money according to this Congressional Budget Office. And my goal is exactly the same, which is universal coverage for people in America. It is appalling that we, we don't have universal coverage. We should have universal coverage from an economic point of view to say nothing of the moral point of view. Um, it's just a question of how we're going to get there. And, and when do you expect some of these other uh, 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 proposals to be scored? Well, it's a good question because I think that there's a, there's a reluctance to score them because because the the great talking point goes away the minute people find out how much it's going to cost. We just lost a single-payer uh, ballot initiative in Colorado, eight, I think it was 80-20, because people knew how high their taxes were going to go, and, um, and it, so it creates a real political challenge. It's far less of a political challenge when you never have to tell anybody what it's going to cost. But that's not dealing with reality. Uh, Senator, we have a number of questions relating to um, uh, what's going on at the border, um, and, and most of them relate to, you know, what can we do to help? Um, any advice for people who are wondering whether a call to Congress would make a I difference, would, and if so, I, what they should I, say? 
It absolutely would make a difference. I would call um, you know, the people that you – I would not spend your time calling people who you know are already with you and have been vocal about this. I would call other members of Congress who, who should be speaking up. You know, I was really interested by Laura Bush's comparison of, of, of this, the situation at the border, and, of course, she's from Texas, the situation at the border to the Japanese internment camps that – um, that we had in the in the United States, one of the only people that stood up uh, for that or against that was a guy named Ralph Carr, who was um, uh, a Democrat or a Republican governor of Colorado, who, in under very difficult circumstances, uh, said that this was a dastardly thing to do to American citizens, and that um, and that and that racial politics in general was something that was wrong. He's remembered on an honor roll of history. And this is one and it was very hard at the time for him to do it. This is one of those times when we need everybody coming together, Republicans and Democrats and saying this is not uh acceptable. It's not consistent with who we are as Americans. We know that we've had every single living first lady say that this should be uh not tolerated. The president could change this policy with one phone call and he should um, I think that we should have members of Congress, we should be asking members of Congress whether they're weighing in with the White House or other people in the administration. And uh, it would be, it's critically important to hear from the business community on this question. Um, this is a fundamental question about civil rights in the United States. It's a kind of fundamental intersection of the, of the symbol that we want to send to the rest of the world and the pictures that are coming out of these places on on the border are 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 the result of of children there are the result of policies being conducted in the name of the American people, and the only way for that to change is for the American people to say we are not going to tolerate that set of policies. Uh, for those on the line who've uh, been reaching out to us about what to do, please uh, contact us at info at businessfwd.org. If you're looking for uh, any specific advice, uh, we've, we're also can provide media training. If you're going to be talking to reporters, uh, just let us know whatever you need, and we're happy to help. Um, can I give, you, can I give you one other piece of advice oh, along those lines, which is the, the president also here, as he has been in the year that he's been in office, is engaged in a full-throated assault on the media and a full-throated assault on facts. There are, by now, enough people in his own party who have said that he can change this with one stroke of a, of a pen that should supply the evidence everybody needs to be able to say what he's saying isn't true, what he's saying is false. And I think it's important to remind people of that because there's a lot of misinformation out there in the world. The it the The... The you know focusing your attention on getting him to change this I think is, would be very valuable I think and I want to thank you for that because um, for taking the time to to think about it and to do something and about we, it. Yeah, uh, we've had thousands of people taking action on immigration reform over the last year, and frankly, you know they they, they call us back later and they they wonder you know how much more they can do because they don't seem to be listening. But this seems like an opportunity where. It's certainly worth the effort. Uh, um, Senator, our, our, we have a live call from uh, David Skaggs, uh, a former congressman from Colorado. Uh, and uh, uh, David, uh, you are live. 
Um, good afternoon, Michael, and uh, appreciate the chance to throw a question your way, especially given that the uh, budget resolution for fiscal uh, 2019 has been put forward. Uh, wanted to commend you for your votes for fiscal sanity over the last while and uh, see if you have any initial reaction to the prospects for sanity grabbing hold of the Congress going <laughs> forward. Well, uh, first of all, Your Honor, thank you very much for being on the call. I, I'm not sure I can supply any wisdom in, in your direction, but thank you for noticing the votes, too, because um, this is a question that I often don't get, which I think is one of the reasons why Congress doesn't pay attention to these issues. So just to back up for a second, for everybody's recollection, when Bill Clinton left the White House, uh, we had a budget surplus. It's the last time we had a surplus, and Congress was holding hearings about what to do with the surplus. There was a $5 trillion projected surplus over 10 years. George Bush came in, 01 tax cut, 03 tax cut, said they'd pay for themselves. Two wars, the Iraq War, by the way, he, 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 we invaded Iraq and then gave ourselves a tax cut. After we, so not only did we not pay for the wars, we were cutting taxes as we were going to war. Then Medicare Part D came in, and then we had an economic crisis, and Barack Obama inherited a $1.2 trillion deficit, not a surplus. To me, I, I'm just always astonished that these guys get credit for being fiscally responsible when they are actually the more irresponsible of the two parties, although in Washington both parties, in my view, are irresponsible on this issue. And this issue matters a lot because in the name of fiscal responsibility, we've cut 30% of our domestic discretionary spending, our investment in the future, uh, as a percentage of our economy uh, from 1980 until now. So for millennials, it's the worst of all possible worlds because we are not investing them on the one hand and piling up debt for them to pay back on the other hand, which seems to me to be enormously unfair especially if we're doing as the Republican majorities and President Trump just did, which is to create a trillion-dollar deficit at a moment when the country is actually, when our economy is very strong, and, and that's what we're going to have next year. So next year we will have the biggest deficit that we have had as a percentage of GDP outside of a war, and outside of a recession. And that's been brought to you by a Republican House, a Republican Senate, and a Republican President of the United States, who are behaving in some ways exactly the way the Bush guys, did, you know, the, the second Bush did when, when he inherited a surplus from Bill Clinton. So, in short, the answer to your question is, I do not think there is a moment in the near future where there will be uh, a sane conversation about this. I have been appointed to a bicameral, that is the House and Senate, and bipartisan uh, committee to look at to see where we could improve our budget process, which I think it would also be useful because the American people have no transparency into the budgeting decisions that have been made here. But the fiscal hypocrisy of the majorities today, I think, is something that needs to be litigated in the country so the country can understand uh, the fact that not only are we not making responsible fiscal choices, we're also starving the next generation and constraining their range of motion because of the choices that we're not willing to make as a country. 
we, we're going to have to set a table for that conversation. And to be honest with you, there are very few people here that want to have the conversation. Uh, we are going to have to figure out how to do it. And, uh, and I don't think there's a shortcut. I think we're going to have to begin to have the discussion out in the country, get people to raise the issue just as you have, David, and see whether we can go forward on some bipartisan basis. This will never, the fiscal challenges that we confront will never be faced by one party alone. They can't be. So it would seem to me that this would be a pretty good opportunity when we could figure it out to, to have Democrats and Republicans understand, just as Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill understood, that at sometimes you got to hold hands and jump together. We have a question from Denise Moore from Blue Ridge, Pennsylvania, and her question is about uh, uh, the uh, uh, risk of a trade war with China and what it can mean both uh, for manufacturers that Trump's trying to protect, but uh, for services industries. Um, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, if he's got, if if he's got, it may be different in Western Pennsylvania, but if there's an employer in my state that believes they're being helped by Donald Trump's trade policies, I have yet to hear from them. Uh, and there are a lot of them that are worried about, um, in particular, what he's doing with Canada and Mexico, because those are our most important export markets. And um, I'm sorry, that's the signal going on for the vote, which means they're late, which is good. Um, that, uh, and, I, and I think they, they believe, as I believe, that if you're concerned about our trading relationship with China, which I am, uh, and what China has been doing to us. It would seem to me that actually creating a strong um, uh, set of trading relationships and a shared agenda in this region of the world might be a useful thing to do to counteract what China's doing. They don't obviously see any of that in a in a in a you know steel tariffs against. Canada, when we have, I think, a $2 billion surplus in steel with Canada, I mean, the list goes on and on. So, so that, I think, people are not convinced has been particularly helpful. And on agriculture, there, people are, um, are terrified because commodity prices are so low uh, as it is. That, and, and, they, and when I asked Lighthizer about this at a finance committee hearing, the, the trade representative, he said, well, your farmers and ranchers have my sympathy because they will be the first ones retaliated against in a trade war. And I said, you know, what we don't need is your sympathy. What we need is for you and the administration to be acting responsibly so that we can push our trade case for America and make sure that we have the best deals that we, we can possibly have for our industries and for our, um, and for our businesses and workers but to do it in a way that's actually constructive. And I think, unfortunately, uh, it's been not particularly constructive and all over the map, and it's doing real damage in part because it is promote, provoking the domestic politics of, um, of other countries to look at the United States with ill will, and that's not helpful when you're in a negotiation with people. And that's been going on for a while. I mean, it doesn't help, for example, when as the president was saying over and over again, that he was going to build a wall and the Mexicans were going to pay for it. When you say things like that, it's not as though that doesn't have an effect on the domestic constituencies of the politicians that we're negotiating with. 
Uh, thank you. Uh, we uh, Business Florida uh, started a steel uh, price index last month to track changes in the prices American manufacturers are paying and compare that to the prices foreign uh, competitors are paying. And not surprisingly, the tariffs are causing our prices to go up. But what a lot of people don't appreciate is when you put a wall around us, the surplus steel goes other places, so their yep. prices actually drop. So yep. ours are up 18%. Uh, China's prices are down 3 um, and uh, oh, we'll, I'd, be, we'll I'd, be tracking I would that. really like – I'd love to get those numbers from you. We'll, we'll yeah. figure out how to. Yeah. So, um, well, Senator, I understand uh, you've got votes, and uh, we're, we're uh, now at 3 o'clock. We, we really appreciate you taking the time to participate and uh, – um, uh, we, uh, we, if, uh, if we get more questions, uh, what we'll do is we'll refer them to your staff, uh, and so right. they can answer and them. I, and uh, and if I can just say one thing before you go, first, a word of thanks about everything you guys are doing and your, and your, and your participation in the democracy. And second, or the last thing I just want to say is when the founders were setting up this country, they knew they were doing something that nobody had ever done before, and that was create a democratic republic. It hadn't existed, and certainly never one where the voter, the people themselves ratified the Constitution. And since then, you know, we've had a lot of people democratize the republic that they ratified. But at the very beginning, they knew we would have disagreement. The whole point of being in a republic was that there wasn't a tyrant to tell you what to do. The question was, how would you resolve the disagreement? And right now, we are using their really me elegant mechanism to have disputes instead of to resolve disputes, and we're destroying the mechanism in the process. That it calls on all of us as citizens to invent a much better politics than the one we've been watching, and that's even before Donald Trump got here. So. I'm sorry to lay that on you at the very end, but it's on my <laughs> mind, and I uh, and I if I can be of any service to anybody on this phone call in doing that, please let me know. Thank you, As, Senator. Thank you very much, and thank you to all of you who joined us for the call today. Uh, we'll be uh, sending you a survey uh, 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 for today's call, and um, also a link to a recording. Uh, thank you very much.